This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hey, how's it going? Samson Folk here, host of the Raptors Reaction Podcast. You're probably noticing how that intro sounded like it was the intro for a commercial for this podcast. Well, it's not. You're listening to it. And today, one of my favorite guests to have on, the wonderful Joe Wolfond, Pound the Rock Podcast. He's co-hosting over there and an NBA Features writer for The Score. Joe, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing all right, man. You know, as, as good as can be, I guess, in these trying times. How about yourself? Something about Lovecraftian horror, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> My first question, Joe. Now I've been a colleague of S. I've been a colleague of his before, and now you are. What's what's the feeling so far on S? I mean, unfortunately, like I haven't really gotten to interact with him in person since he started working for us. Um, but I, I think he's great at what he does. Uh, he's He's making videos for us over at our YouTube channel, and I think they're all fantastic. Um, we interact a lot on Twitter. Uh, he recently narrated a video that I scripted about Serena Williams. Uh, I think he's been a great addition to the team, and um, by all accounts, a great dude. That's wonderful. He's prolific Twitter. He's prolific Twitter user, for sure. Absolutely. And high proficiency as well. Efficient. He's like LeBron James over there. Okay, high, so high volume, high efficiency. Yes, exactly. 70% true shooting percentage. Okay, so here's the thing. We're here to talk about the Raptors, and I want to start at a controversial place. I know, and you probably know this about me as well, for my lack of commentary on the timeline and in the reaction podcast, no ref talk. I am a disciple of that uh, mantra, but the Raptors have been embroiled in a lot of ref talk lately and somewhat earned because they have 28 technical fouls this season. No other team has more than 20. What do you see from this team that engenders such a response from these referees? They just don't stop talking. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, we, we've known this about Kyle Lowry for years, right? Like, he will talk a referee's ear off until they basically tell him that's enough. Like, you got to stop or I'm going to tee you up and... A lot of times he just keeps talking anyway and he'll get himself teed up. Um, Nick Nurse certainly has gone red in the face uh, pretty much every game this year, right? Like I, I don't recall a single game in which he has looked to be enjoying himself on the sidelines, like even a little bit. Um, and the team, like, I don't want to put this on any one person. You know, it's not Lowry's fault. Um, it's, it's nobody's fault. I just, it, it's been like a team-wide trend where, they they just bitch to the refs a lot. And like, they definitely have a case some of the time and some of the time they don't. And like, look, calls go against every team all the time. Like refs aren't going to get every single call right. Sometimes it's going to go in your favor. Sometimes it's going to go against you. And they got to just, well, I think, learn to like let stuff go. They haven't been able to do that. And I think that's why you see that they're getting teed up way more than any other team in the league. Do you think it's swung a game yet? Like the, the negative results of the tee has had major, uh, a major impact down the road of the game. Do you think it's swung a game yet? And I guess you could say maybe it did last game because they went on that massive run after Nurse left. And, you know, jokes inbound that they're having fun when the big meanie nurse has <laughs> left the court. But, uh, yeah, what do you think about that? Not off the top of my head. I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, correlation does not equal causation. Like you, you can see they, they kind of turned things around after Nurse got ejected last game and um, say that maybe that fired them up or the constant complaining to the officials, as, uh, as Nurse pointed out. I think 
in response to a question from Lewis that sometimes it works, you know, sometimes you're able to make the referees aware of something that perhaps they're missing and, and that helps the free throw disparity sort of even out over the rest of the game. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe that has worked in their favor at some point in time, you know, to the naked eye, I don't think, I don't think that it's necessarily swung a game. Like I think that Memphis game turned because of that lineup that the Grizzlies threw out there at the start of the fourth quarter. Um, and, and that is more so what I would attribute it to. Uh, and I guess, I mean, you could say that it, may have swung a game against them in Sacramento when Kyle picked up that tech, when they had a chance to maybe keep it a one possession game and have a chance to tie it. But um, also I think it was De'Aaron Fox, right? He was at the free throw line, like with a chance to hit the second one that would have put it out of reach anyway. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I don't know that that changed the outcome in that game either. Yeah. I don't think it's swung a game yet, which you know, it, and also since it's only one free throw, right? And in the worst case, a guy leaves the game. But last night, Kyle Lowry left the game at the end of the first quarter because of back spasms, which I guess we'll touch on a little bit later. But yeah, it's tough to imagine it swinging a game, which means do you keep being angry at the refs all the time in the hopes of, as Nick Nurse says, helping you know swing things a little bit? I don't know. I think it's better if they just kind of chill out a little bit because – in every game that I've played basketball, and I am not an NBA player, quite frankly, I'm not even close. So this is a, a horrible story to tell, but I'm going to tell it. I've never had success complaining to a ref, and it seems like a, a fool's errand. Now, of course, it can be a little bit different in the NBA, but the reason they beat the Grizzlies, as you said, was because of the Grizzlies' uh, callous disrespect for Gorgie Jang's uh, talents offensively and defensively and trying to play small with ill-equipped players, I think. That surprised me quite a bit. And then I saw, I can't remember who's the, the beat guy for the Grizzlies. There's a couple, but he had said this has been happening for a couple games in a row. So I'm sure Grizzlies fans are upset about that. And also, the blitzing of Morant came around in a big way, and I thought Bembry did a really good job as his primary. That helped a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm really loving Bembry. I, I think, like... He, he is very good at the kind of like pressure and recover schemes that the Raptors mm-hmm. like to play. And when he's out there, they really are able to amp up that pressure without getting burned on the back end. Uh, like he moves around the court so fluidly and gets his hands on everything too, right? Mm-hmm. So I've really enjoyed uh, him getting more regular minutes. And as much as, you know, we don't really... I won't say we don't know what he is as a shooter. Like his track record is that he's not a good shooter, even though I think he's, he's five for 10 from three this season. But um, the thing is like, I, I do trust him with the ball in his hands. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I think like the way often to mitigate somebody's uh, lack of gravity is just to put the ball in their hands. And obviously that only works if they're actually competent with the ball in their hands. But like, Bemery can do stuff off the dribble, you know, like he can, he can make plays, uh, he can handle it. He makes really intuitive passes. So I think that he should be a mainstay in the rotation. And I, I do think that like his presence in the second half of that game was a big part of what turned it around for them defensively. Yeah. I've been banging this drum for a while. I am lower on Stan than most people, I think. And that's like, that's fine. I'm still very happy that Stan has been able to turn it around and see what he continues to do to improve. But the playmaking that has been attributed to Stan that everybody thought was kind of popping off, I thought was the the lower end of what Bembry is able to do with the ball in hand. And, you know, Stan is more so a stationary playmaker. Like, he'll have both feet set, two hands on the ball, and they'll start making decisions there. But Bembry does it on the move, which is infinitely more valuable usually, unless it's Nikola Jokic and he can just hang out in one spot and pass people into layups. But Bembry as well defensively, as you say, super fluid mover on the floor. Probably, you know, Pascal and OG are in consideration, but Pascal doesn't have the same kind of vertical pop that Bembry does. Bembry probably profiles as the best traditional athlete on the roster. I, I know OG is fast and he can jump out, like out of the gym, but Bembry, as far as the ability to move fluidly 
and the vertical pop and the strength, I think he might be the the best athlete on the roster. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but I, I don't, <laughs> on its face, I don't think that that's an outrageous claim. Um, and he's just, that's the kind of player who inevitably gets described as a whirling dervish, right? Even though... <laughs> Let me check my whirling dervish chart and <laughs> get back to you. Ah, uh, yes, a whirling dervish, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. That's just, it's like a player archetype. I feel uh, like the whirling dervish, who's just like a, a chaos agent. Um, even though I, I don't actually know what a whirling dervish is, I've only heard it used to describe basketball players before. Uh, but that, for whatever reason, is how I conceptualize DeAndre Bembry. And since we're, we're already here, do you have another player that you would describe as a whirling dervish, just for context? Um, I mean, I think, like, early career Siakam, before he kind of tamped down his more hyperkinetic impulses um, and, and smoothed things out a bit when, you know, he was just sort of like a bundle of energy streaking down the floor and um, obviously the spin move uh, is you know, makes, makes up the whirling element of that equation. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, to me, it just, uh, yeah, sort of describes a fast player who is kind of pinging from one side of the floor to the other uh, in a blur, you know, where their constant motion is almost flummoxing other people out there just because, you know, it's not necessarily an abundance of skill, but like that perpetual motion can be disorienting. Yeah, that's that seems like a good way to describe it. The spin Siakam, I think in my first year with Raptors Republic, is a game against the Jazz, and I described it as Jay Crowder guarding Siakam and, you know, didn't realize what he was doing, but accidentally pressed the button on Siakam's back that turns on the spin cycle, and then Siakam transmogrified into a uh, washing machine. And managed to spin to the rim. <laughs> so, yes, he has tamped down some of his hyperkinetic wants. Okay, so we've talked about Bembry. And, you know, we've talked about this, uh, this problem with technical fouls that the Raptors have been having. No certain answers yet. Both are dealing in small sample size. I, like you, do want more Bembry, though. But two guys who have received very small sample sizes, and maybe Jalen Harris, the smallest sample size, Malachi Flynn, Harris, they're off to the G League bubble to do battle with the 905. Anything you're looking for in particular from them? Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one to answer. I guess with, with Flynn in particular, just because we've actually seen a, a decent amount of him at the NBA level, um, I, I guess I have a better sense of what I'd be looking for. But um. You know, the the thing, I guess, that was missing, like, he didn't... I feel like in those couple of preseason games against Charlotte, he had a little bit more pop off of the dribble than I anticipated. Like, I think that was the big knock on him coming out, right? It was like, he's not really an explosive athlete. He's not going to dust guys off the bounce. Um, and he's going to be more of, like, a game manager, right? Like a, a manipulative pick-and-roll player who can get to that mid-range pull-up or the floater uh, and doesn't need elite quickness in order to thrive as an on-ball guard. Um, but, I, you know, I feel like they, there was a little bit more of that off-ball juice, uh, on-ball juice um, in the preseason games, and then I, I, didn't, I didn't really see it, like, at all in any of his NBA minutes. and. I don't know if that was just like the game speed kind of amped up in regular season games, but um, I I guess I just want to see like, is that there, you know, like does he have that kind of off the dribble juice where he can take guys off of the bounce? He can create separation for the jumper. Um, I mean, just the jumper itself, like that obviously wasn't there either. Like he was, he got a decent number of clean mid range looks that he just couldn't knock down in his minutes with the Raptors. So the, the, the like decision-making, the playmaking, that stuff I'm not really worried about. Like, I think that's going to be there. But I think as far as, like, his ability to self-create, um, that's the thing I want to see. Like, is, is he going to go down to the G League and just, like, dominate guys the way that Fred did once upon a time? 
I think he should, and I think that's in his game. As you say, though, the the burst was the biggest thing missing from his his game, and especially to allow him to translate all of his you know his scoring to the next level. Is if that half step isn't there, is he getting bumped off his line? And are those mid range jumpers now available at, with a little bit of a fade on it, either to his left or to his right, rather than him actually getting you know the pick? getting into a space where he likes to go and then popping for a little mid-range jumper. And I think the difference between the preseason and the regular season was that I don't think it was game speed. I just think it was that he didn't hit a couple shots and then he was less looking for his own shot. So when you see a guy attack a defense looking to pass around it, it just kind of, it becomes very apparent the opportunities that they're not taking for themselves. And that's something with Fred too is, Fred's ability to make teams pay when he's going downhill or from the mid-range, which he's gotten a little bit better at this year, is that people realize, oh, that was an advantage that wasn't taken. And you can see those kind of stack up. And when that happens to a player, it just kind of takes away everything that they're trying to do because defenses respond in kind. So Malachi, I think, just going down there to get back a rhythm for him to be a little bit more of a hunter for his own shot, I think the, the self-creation thing makes sense. Jalen, haven't seen much of him. Basically, all I know is that, you know, when he attacked from the weak side, he didn't have the strength. He had the quickness, but he kept getting bumped off his line, so he couldn't get any of those nice straight line drives to the basket, really. Hit a couple shots, did his thing, but is a massive question mark. Perhaps another DeAndre Daniels that we never really get to see much of. Yeah, I, I don't even think like I, I've seen enough of him to form a strong opinion about what he can be or, or like what sort of indicators I'd be looking for watching him. Like he does have some explosiveness, right? Like uh, the leaping ability seems to be there and he's mm-hmm. quick. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I'll flip it back to you, I guess. Like if if you're projecting him as like an NBA rotation player down the road, is he a spot up guy, you know, or are you plugging him into uh, a three and D role? Is he somebody who is going to have the ball in his hands as, as kind of like a secondary creator? Like what is he? Okay. So for, from what I saw at Nevada, just going back because to cover him this year, going back to watch some of his stuff, I think Robel uh, tweeted out a link to a game where Malachi and Jalen actually played against each other. And I think his future, if you're looking at ceiling, is a, a tertiary ball handler, a, wild, a wiry kind of guile operator. Now, it doesn't have to be Lou Williams, but a guy who operates in the same kind of vein where you have to get the defender off balance constantly because if they're on balance, you're just not going to be able to push your way to any spot on the floor. And I think Harris will probably encounter some of those problems. And typically, guys don't just get super beefed up and then start pushing people around. I think more so they, uh, and he was a four-year guy as well, so more so they, they end up kind of working their way around those, those incompetencies as far as their, their body and become better off-balance shot makers or off-foot finishers at the rim, really strong hesitation moves and stuff like that. So if I were looking for anything from Jalen, I think it would less be something you'd want from Norm, which is Norm, you don't want to see that much herky-jerk. You want to see him explode to the rim. You want to see him finish. With Jalen, I'd like to see him in his bag quite a bit, I think. And then jump shooting at his position, at his size, never hurts anything. So that, that would probably be good for me. To go back to what you asked me, like if you're watching him with 905, are you, what kind of role do you want to see him playing there to, to see if those skills are popping? Like you want him playing primarily on the ball? Yeah, primarily on the ball. That's what I think because I don't I don't know what he offers as a guy. If he's just going to be shooting, I I think that doesn't use his uh, his quickness and his you know he has a bit of a handle. So mm-hmm. I think you'd be wasting that. I think that's something to develop. And this is for the ceiling version of him, right? I don't know if yeah. that's ever comes to fruition, but I I do think some of that on ball herky jerk stuff would be well equipped with his game. But you don't, I mean, being an off-ball guy doesn't necessarily mean you're just a spot-up shooter either, right? Like, he, he right. could be like a slasher. Um, yeah, of course, but, just more so to, uh, to respond at the next level. 
usually you can do things better at G League. Like Norm was a good point guard in the G League, but his decision making mm-hmm. is severely lacking in the NBA. So more so developing that at, a, you know, you can beat your primary in the G League with those types of moves. Maybe you could beat a moving defense as an off-ball guy at the NBA level more so. Right. Okay, so I feel like that's, that's Jalen and, and Malachi. More to come on them, obviously. There's a, there's a lot to be left. There's a lot left to be seen from them, and there's obviously we haven't seen much, even of Malachi, who was supposed to come in and provide a little bit right away. That hasn't really happened. So it may be something happy. Joe, your favorite storyline so far this year that is Raptors the Jace? I think it's just the, the season that Fred's having. Like the fact mm-hmm. that he continues to round out his game and that every time I feel like people want to pigeonhole him into being one kind of player, he sort of manages to take a step toward becoming a different, more fully formed kind of player. And I think like the, the way that he is able to defend at his size with his wingspan, um, the, the playmaking ability that he has added to his game, like the fact that he, you know, as I tweeted last night, like he looks like a point guard and I wouldn't have said that about him coming into this season. So I'm just really happy for him. Obviously it's been an incredible journey and a great story. And um, I think, you know, you just, you like to see good things happen to good people who work really hard. And I think that is Fred to a T. Is there, because I think we all have a ratio. Anybody who pays attention to Fred has seen him as a very, very good off-ball guard in the middling on-ball guard. And the middling, as you say, is trending upwards. Do you have a ratio of how much time you'd like him to spend at each spot? And I know the game is fluid, but if you'll play the game with me, I'd love to have you. Uh, Well, I I mean, I guess 50-50 is where I'd have it. Like, it, it just totally depends on who else is on the floor with him. So... Obviously, you know, like if, if Kyle's out there, I would prefer for it to be maybe like a, a 70-30 split, you know, with, with Lowry having more of the on-ball possessions. But, um, you know, if you're doing a stagger with those guys and that works out to, to Fred sort of having the ball, you know, like 30% of the time when he's playing with Kyle and like, you know, close to 100% of the time when he's not, um, And obviously, I mean, like, it it doesn't work out that cleanly because there are going to be some possessions where you want Pascal to initiate. Um, But, I I mean, I I have felt more comfortable and better about Fred initiating than Pascal this season, which is another thing that I didn't expect. Uh, And that speaks maybe to some of the struggles that Pascal has had just sort of creating off of the bounce. But I also think it speaks a lot to how well Fred has been initiating this season. Yeah. 70-30 is a a very good ratio for Kyle and Fred, although I think sometimes it goes a little bit more even. What do you think of Fred plus bench lineups? As you said, you know, if there's not another guy on the floor, sometimes 100% of initiation goes to him. I think Raptors fans are accustomed to their lead guard taking bench lineups and just pumping them into these, you know, bonus net rating areas, but Fred not quite able to do the same thing. Do you see anything promising from Fred as far as him with the all bench lineups? Is that a route you'd like to see traveled more often? Um, it's yeah. Again, it's just like so context specific, right? Like I, I don't think Fred can do what Kyle does where he is somehow lifting a lineup that just doesn't have any other like shot creation at all. I think if Fred's doing it like, you know, with Norm out there um, and maybe, and, and like Boucher and, and there is enough, you know, sort of individual scoring around him to make that work, then I, I'd be perfectly fine with it. But if it's, you know, Fred out there with Bembry and Utah and Stan, then I don't really trust him to do what Kyle does as far as just like lifting all boats and, just making sure that those guys can get the ball in the right spots and and be like reasonably effective offensive players. And then those lineups can kind of just thrive by creating chaos defensively and getting out in transition. Like 
Fred obviously creates a lot of turnovers, but I, I don't think he's as good a decision maker in transition as Kyle is not even close to be honest. Um, and I do think that's a, a big reason those Lowry and bench units thrive, right? Is that, like they just get out on the break and trust Kyle to make the right decision, whether it's a hit ahead pass or a pitch back. Um, and Fred, I do think in transition still gets a little bit of that tunnel vision. I, the cool kids are calling Stan, Utah, and Bembry, the Defenders 3, just so you know, Joe. That's, uh, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. That's a very popular nickname at this point in time. But okay, yeah, I do agree with that. It's Lowry's ability to lead non-shooters into baskets at the rim, whether it be in transition or in the half court, is not really something that can be replicated by hardly any players league-wide. And Fred Van Vliet obviously is not at that level. But as you say, pair him with a couple guys who can shoot the three, Norm, Boucher, especially Norm lately. Holy smokes, really, really been shooting the ball. But Fred, as I think everyone knows at this point, creates three-pointers at an extremely high rate and pretty good looks. He's gotten really good at getting into the middle and then teasing the the weak side guy into picking a, a player to defend or to jut out at the pass and Fred picking the other guy to pass to. It's It's been a really nice development. But I think as far as... The favorite storyline of this year, I would be I would be the same as you. We've been robbed a little bit of fun storylines in Toronto because Pascal is trying to get to a place where he's been before. OG has been injured, and uh, Kyle obviously with back spasms. What do you make of? Uh, I know he's at an advanced age in the league now. As far as the relation to back spasms, do you think this is something that might hang around for a while? I mean, it can be a recurring thing. Um, and as somebody who's been dealing with back spasms myself lately, they really suck. And there is just not a whole lot that you can really do about them, except just like kind of wait for them to subside. Um, so it's obviously not great. Uh, I, I can't say with any degree of certainty, like what it's going to mean in the big picture, but yeah, obviously any physical ailment for your undersized 34 year old point guard is going to cause a little bit of worry, right? How, how do the back spasms affect your jump shot, Joe? <laughs> Dude, I haven't shot a jump <laughs> shot in far too long. I mean, it's been, it's been basically a year now. So uh, quite debilitating. Like I'm spending hours of the day just kind of like lying on my back on top of a heating pack and um, it's no fun. So I, I hope that he gets well soon and um, can start to feel better and get back on the court. But uh Certainly not a pleasant thing to go through. I've not yet had a back spasm in my life. It does not sound like something I want to endure. What's the, uh, what's the first sport you're going to play once the pandemic is over? Well, I mean, I've been playing tennis throughout. Um, so I'm going to keep doing that. It's a really COVID-friendly sport. Um, right. Obviously, that hasn't been happening in the winter. But basically, like I'll play in any temperature. I'll bundle up as long as there's no snow on the ground. And there's a, a court that, um, you know, is dry. I'll be out there hitting. So I'll continue to play that. Um, I was able to get, uh, like, my softball league didn't start up until very, very late in the summer last year. But that was a real treat. Uh, we got to play kind of like an abbreviated season. So hopefully we'll be able to do that again this spring and summer. Um, but, like, you know, the the – the only real indoor sport I play, I guess, is basketball. So uh, I am looking forward to to getting back out there and playing again because that's the one that I just haven't been able to play at all. Were the winners of your softball league bludgeoned with comments about how it's not a real victory? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, so, so my team actually <laughs> lost in the finals and we were definitely calling it an asterisk season. So um, what would you say if I told you I have a tennis court like right outside of my house? I mean, are you, uh, are you making use of it? Uh, not really, but it's not my tennis court. I don't own it. I, I'm but, not putting but on airs but you, for you, Joe. But you have, you have access to it. In theory, I think yes. In that case, I would say, um, that like, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Get, get out there <laughs> and, and work on those forehands. Okay. So don't look a gift horse in the mouth. 27th overall pick. Pascal Siakam has developed into somewhat of a star. 
He started to trend up in virtually everything this year, save for the three-point shot. Uh, The defense has been a little bit more inconsistent than maybe last year as well, but it's hard to exist consistently in a very inconsistent framework. Have you, do you feel you're coming around to a very optimistic space with Pascal or have there been developments that worry you for the long-term effects of, you know, his max contract, what he'll be, all that kind of stuff? A little bit of both, probably leaning more toward the former than the latter. I think there's a lot to be encouraged about. I actually think the defense is maybe not quite at the level it was at. People maybe forget just because of how good he was at that end in the playoffs, but Throughout the regular season, it was the same thing. It was maddeningly inconsistent. And when he would crank it up, he could be just an absolute terror. But he would also drift through a lot of games and blow some rotations and just not be fully locked in. And I think that was sort of understandable given the increased offensive load he was carrying. So I think generally, you know, the fact that he still can ratchet it up and get to that higher gear is a good sign and and means that when they need that from him in a playoff game, they're going to be able to rely on, you know, honestly one of the best team defenders and gap fillers in the league. Um, So I don't really have any concerns on that front. I do think, you know, I'm still a little bit worried about the handle. um, And I, I think, he can get to the point where, uh, you know, he, he's initiating more off of the bounce and doing so effectively, but it's also possible that that's just not going to be a huge part of his game. And I think that can be okay if he continues to thrive the way that he's been thriving the last few games as a playmaker and scorer out of the post. Um, and I think, you know, the, the touch still isn't where it was two years ago. And maybe it's just never going to be at that level again. But to me over the last, you know, 10, 12 games or so, like he has been just as effective, if not more so as a post player than he was last year. Um, The mid range shooting, I think has been pretty encouraging. And, you know, even if you just look at his numbers on top of the big playmaking bump that he's gotten this season, he's also shooting way better from two point range. And so if you start to see that three-point percentage and the volume too, which has seen a pretty big drop-off, if you see those things come back up to the level they were at last season, then, you know, his offensive numbers are basically going to be ahead of where they were a year ago. Like that's the only thing right now that's preventing him from looking like an improved player. Um, So I think those are all pretty encouraging signs. Uh, I don't know. Do you like – I think that it, it, philosophically it's like, do you want to play into his strengths or do you want him to continue working on that off the bounce game? Like use him more as a ball handler in the pick and roll and, and get him to expand that part of his game as kind of like a long-term project or, or would you rather just see them lean into his strengths and maximize him that way? That's, that's the question. And maybe why he's been a frustrating player to some people because he is not, and this is, you know, a, a theme for a lot of players in the league is they do not become better at the things you expect them to, but they improve in other areas. Like Harrison Barnes is a good player now. He's not at all what, you know, Dallas thought he was going to be, but he's effective for the Kings right now. Pascal developing as a post-up threat is kind of the antithesis of what people thought might happen with his with his play, with how he operates and what they're projecting him forward as. But undoubtedly, as you say, he has been much better in the post this year than in years past. And the only way teams have been able to stop him is overloading. And if they overload correctly, they make him a shooter, which is a win. But if they overload in the wrong way, they make him a passer, which is a win for the Raptors. And, you know, maybe the shooting, if it comes around, there's just no way to really scheme Pascal out of the game you know, if they go zone, he'll hit shots. If they go, you know, overloading as far as sending a double from the top or from the bottom or from the side, whatever it might be, he'll make the pass. And that's been something that's been trending upwards. But a person like myself who admittedly all last year, I was saying, I want more pick and roll Siakam. I want more. 
And the numbers were quite encouraging at the start of the year when Pascal, or sorry, not Pascal, when Lewis wrote his big piece dissecting every single pick and roll the Raptors had run, the Pascal stuff was still really, really efficient. I haven't looked at any numbers like that in quite a while, but it's it's interesting because there's a clear way a lot of people want him to develop and he's doing it in another way. And that's, you know, you can't make these guys do what you want them to do. Would it be good if he was a dynamite screener and had the pacing as a roll man because he is obviously an advanced passer. So on the short roll, he could be dangerous if the touch comes around in a meaningful way. All that makes for a very, very talented player, but it's not a guy you hand the ball to and give him a screen and roll and he makes the decision going downhill. It's, uh, it's all very interesting for Pascal, especially since he's straying away from what I think most people think a superstar or a max player looks like with his body type. And the defense, I think, is a good point too because that's you know highlighting a weakness of mine, maybe a little bit. I'm thinking of Pascal in the playoffs defensively where I had him as a top five defender in the league at that point in time. And now, you know, goes back to the regular season where he, he was more inconsistent last year now that I think of it. And that's, that's a good point to make. Yeah. Um, and I did actually just check while you were talking the numbers on. I Pascal. talked for that long. <laughs> <laughs> it, did, it didn't, it didn't take me that long. Um, but his pick and roll numbers, if you include his passes out of the pick and roll are actually considerably better this year than last. So I guess that tells you that sometimes the eye test can be faulty uh, and your eyes can lie a little bit um, because he's been a really efficient pick and roll player this year. So maybe that's something they need to be exploring. I'm banging the drum again, Joe. Going right back to it. Um, But no, I mean, I think he's such an interesting player and even just going back to what we were talking about with Fred, like you don't want to pigeonhole a player because you don't know where they're going to improve and what they might be capable of. And I think that's, that's the difficult work, I suppose, of player development, right? Is how do you, like, it, it takes a lot of imagination and vision, you know, to see a player who is, maybe lacking in a certain area and to recognize this is something that they could get better at. And this is the type of player that he can become for our team. Um, And, and obviously, you know, it would have been impossible three years ago to imagine Pascal becoming the player that he is now. So, you know, I don't think that they should put necessarily any constraints on him or, or dictate the kind of player they think he can or should be. Uh, He's proven over and over again that, uh, he can become really any type of player. Uh, and, and I do think that improvement is still in the cards for him moving forward. So um, I, I think, you know, one of the benefits is you can use him in a lot of different types of ways. Uh, and I personally have always felt like I would love to see him be a screener more in the pick and roll. Like weirdly, I like that future for him more almost than, than him being the ball handler in those actions, just because like we've seen at points, he, he can be really effective with that push shot. I think given the, the way that his playmaking is trending, like he could be pretty devastating on the short roll. And like, there are, there are times when we've seen it. Like I remember in that Bucks series a couple years ago when the Bucks were sticking Brooke Lopez on him, and Brooke is like sagging way, way back the way that Embiid had done in the previous series. And they started using him as a role man in that series. And like, I, I remember him being pretty effective at that. That's the thing is he has all of the attributes that would make for a dangerous role man. You just have to get comfortable in that situation. And that's the thing that, you know, typically writers like myself miss on is because they don't just conform and say, okay, all of my abilities say I can do this. I have to get used to this new play type, and suddenly I'm really great at it. Giannis should be the best screener and dunker in the world, and there should be nothing stopping the Bucks from spamming that all the time. But maybe like he doesn't see the floor that well from that part of you know the game, and it's, it's tough to just say, do this role now. You have the skills, and suddenly it becomes really good. It's... Uh, it's very intriguing. Although the stats about the pick and roll, they do tempt me to just say, put the ball in his hands, let him work, dude. 
But also if you're a screener and you have a, you know, a competent guy on ball, let's say one of OG or Fred or still Kyle can dictate a switch, then Pascal can just go right into the post and eat. And there's, yeah, there's just a bunch of advantages that uh, Pascal has a lot of skills. There's a lot of ways to use them. And that's good at the very least. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that is, at this point in time anyway, if you have Pascal on ball and you're running pick and roll for him, like, you want to, like, the screener should be a small. Like, what you want is to generate mm-hmm. the switch and have him go to work in the post and either draw the double team or just score in single coverage. And, and that can be perfectly effective. Um, you know, it's not like he doesn't need to be bombing pull up threes out of the pick and roll. Like he doesn't need to be dusting big guys off of the dribble. Like if you're just generating the switch and creating advantages that way, you know, that's, that can be just as effective as if Pascal's like breaking guys ankles. Um, it might not look as cool, uh, but <laughs> like if it's effective, it's effective. So um, I, I think and context is always important with this too. Like even, you know, like to go back to what you're saying about Giannis as a screener and how that is what everybody wants. And uh, I certainly fall into that category as well, but you do have to think about, okay, like if, if you want this guy to be a screener in the pick and roll, well then who is running that pick and roll? And that's been a big thing with Embiid, right? Like Embiid has never particularly been a, like a good role man, even though it seems like he should be. And maybe that's because he doesn't have that timing down or he's not comfortable, you know, on the roll, or maybe it's because the Sixers haven't really had a good pick and roll point guard for him to play with. Yeah. It's only if Rashawn Holmes comes to the Raptors, does Pascal need to start passing and running uh, big screens instead of the little ones. That's, that's my plan. (laughs) Well, I look forward to that happening as uh, you know, we talked about before the season started, our plan will have to come to fruition uh, next month, basically. Once, you know, the guys who signed this offseason are eligible to be traded and the Raps can go out and get their guy. Yeah. I think we've, we've reached what the, we've hit the threshold for people to start looking at on-off numbers and impact metrics. What is it, 20 games, most people say. Baines. What are your thoughts on Mr. Baines and his contributions to the team so far? Because he did have an excellent game against Vooch with the 16 boards, and he had a really nice defensive game. But he's been in and out. There's, there's a lot going on with his game right now. Yeah, well, <clears throat> as a Raptors center, he is contractually obligated to have a good game against Nikola Vucevic. <laughs> but apart from that, it's been rough, man. And I, I take no pleasure in saying this because – you know, I've been a fan of Baines in the past and he seems like a good dude and a good teammate and does itty gritty that goes underappreciated a lot of the time, but it's rough right now. And like a lot of the time they're just playing four on five at the offensive end with him out there. Like last night, I mean, JV is just playing free safety and gumming everything up. Uh, he obviously has shot the ball really poorly from three point range, but I still think he needs to be willing to take them. And he's not right now. Like he's catching the ball in the perimeter and he's not even looking at the rim, you know, like his screens have been great, but I think they lose a little bit of their value when the opposing team isn't worried at all about what he's going to do when he's slipping into space. And like, you find, do you find that the screens have been less frequent than in Phoenix? I think I watched seven Phoenix games of his last year and he is more, he was more mobile getting yeah. around the court to the court to set different types of screens all the time. It wasn't just a ball screen guy, you know? Yeah. And, and I think like he, he does look to me like he's not moving as well as he was, you know, even last season, at least early last season. And I think that's one of the subtle ways in which, that can have an effect, right? Is that he is, he's not moving around the court as quickly. And because of that, he's not connecting on as many screens. And like I saw um, Assad, uh, you know, prominent member of Raptors Twitter, make the point that because his ball screens aren't really having their desired effect because he's basically being ignored 
after he sets the screen and like teams are freely kind of sending two to the ball or hedging and, and not worrying so much about the recovery. Like he should just be flowing from that ball screen into like a down screen, um, you know, moving on from kind of one screen to the next. And that should be where he is drawing his utility. But I think the fact that he's not moving as well makes that more difficult. And yeah, I, I think, you know, for one reason or another, it does seem to me like I don't have access to the second spectrum stuff, which can tell you actually like how many screens is this guy setting per game. But my guess would be that his rate of screen setting is down from previous years. It's also difficult to land a screen on an NBA player. So off-ball screening is an art unto itself. So like the, the on-ball player is engaged and has to stick as far as like you're a primary defender on a guy with the ball. You have to stick to that guy to some degree. So you're an easier player to screen. Off-ball screening actually requires pretty mobile people to get to spots for off-ball players to find room. And as you say, Baines, if he's not moving as quickly or as smoothly around, you know, where the Raptors are playing offense, it's hard to stick players with the screen in the open court because these guys are incredible athletes and they'll just find a way around. So it's, it's all affecting. Although Assad, yeah, I didn't see that tweet, but, or I don't know if it's a tweet or he said that to you, but um, he, uh, that's, that's a great point. Flowing into different actions and trying to find any type of advantage is, is very, very smart. That's a good way to play basketball. So hopefully Baines can work something like that in. Rashawn Holmes, yeah, guys of that ilk, are you genuinely waiting? Or do you think there's a future where Baines kind of figures it out and then that second year of the contract is awarded as well? And it's, uh, it's very tough to say because, like, you know, first of all, we, we don't know what Messiah's future even is with this team and how that might affect the front office's decision-making, if at all. But, I mean, let's take that out of the equation and let's just say it's like Bobby who's making the decisions for this season. Like, is he looking at this team and saying, okay, this is kind of a bridge year where – transitioning into a new era. We don't know if Kyle's going to be back next year. Are we looking to kind of like do a soft rebuild? You know, it, it hurts to say, but like there is some sense, I think, in a season in which there aren't really going to be many sellers. There aren't going to be many, if any, other star players available is there a kind of inefficiency that you can exploit there where you can be the seller? You know, you put Kyle Lowry on the market and you sort of kick the can down the road a couple of years. Is that the approach or is the approach to say, you know what? Like there's a pretty damn good core five or six here, you know, six, if you include Boucher. And if we can just bolster that, with, you know, like take, take your starting center minutes from well below replacement level to like even league average, like that could make such a difference for this team. And that could make them, uh, you know, the kind of team capable of winning a playoff round. Like, what is that worth to them? You know, is that mm-hmm. like, do, do they want to make the team better now? Or do they think it's not worth it? Cause the team's not good enough to do any significant damage now. And they want to sort of refocus their window uh, for like a couple of years down the road when maybe OG is in his prime and Fred, who just keeps getting better, is in his prime and Siakam is a little bit better than he is now. And you have a chance to maybe add in free agency. Like without knowing, I guess, what the front office's priorities are, it's impossible to say. And maybe they can get a competent center without having to give up any meaningful future assets. And in that case, I think why not? Um, but as far as like, you know, if it would take giving up a piece of their future, whether that's in draft capital or, or trading from the current roster, I don't know. I don't know if that's worthwhile as much as I would love it because it's kind of painful sometimes watching this team try to play four on five and, and work around the whole at the five. Yeah, that's, 
that's the thing about it, right? Is what are you trading? Is it worth it? And how much do you value a year of Fred at market price, if not below? How much do you value, you know, another year of Pascal? And what do these years mean? Because you have to think of it in that way. Like, is this a wasted year of Fred on a good contract then? Are we, are we moving towards a place where you're going to be capped out with those three? Should you start building now and, and trying to move with those limitations as well? And the last time the Raptors were in a really tough position, because they certainly weren't last year and they weren't the year before, they may, and the year, at the end of the year before that, they made the decision to trade DeMar for Kawhi. There isn't a trade like that currently. If there was, it would have been maybe the James Harden trade, although not. it's like apples to oranges there. But the front office has made really good decisions before. This was, I would say, you know, the consensus seems to be a weak offseason for the Raptors, and they kind of got done in by Giannis's indecision, it seems like. But the other shoe has to drop in some way or another for a lot of people because expectations have been recalibrated for a lot of the fan base to where they want, you know, a championship team. That's something that can be achieved in Toronto now. And so if you're not winning at a high rate, what are you doing really? And I don't know if uh, Rashawn Holmes or, uh, you know, Rashawn and JV are two guys who are, you know, presumably gettable JV less so than Rashawn, but for either of them, you are probably looking at moving draft capital or somebody meaningful going back the other way. And then there's a slew of centers who you could probably get for a very cheap amount of money or, you know, assets. And do they move the needle more than you expected Baines to? It's a, it's a tough decision. What do you think about selling and never buying, by the way, as a front office? <laughs> what, what, is it, what do you mean by that? Like, what does that look you, like? You only ever sell your assets. You never, ever trade for them. Like you, you would sell, huh. you would sell a player for picks and you would, then you draft players or you would pick up players in free agency, but you never trade to buy. You only ever trade to sell. Uh, it's like, there's like the Tampa Bay Rays model, basically. Um, I, uh, I think sometimes you need to be a buyer. Like, hell yeah. <laughs> sometimes, you know, if you have a chance to win. Uh, I think it was like the, the Daryl Morey creed, you know, it was like, if you have a 5% chance mm. to win a title, then like you do everything that you can to win, like, to, you know, to go all in for that season, essentially, like that's enough of an opportunity that you should push your chips into the middle um, for that chance that year. And I think, you know, for different teams and different circumstances, it's always going to change the calculus. But, you know, opportunities to win championships are rare. And if you're in the hunt and you have a chance to acquire a player that can really put you in the thick of the title mix or put you over the top, then, yeah, you got to take it. Like, you can't, you can't just be a seller. I just, you know. I understand I like market, market considerations change the calculus for certain teams, but uh, I, I think you got to just like take your opportunities when they come. I like when teams are good. Like the Hornets, they shouldn't have signed Gordon Hayward. People would say, no, 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 you don't sign Gordon Hayward. But he's been really good, basically all-star level. And now as a fan, I get to watch a team that is super, super fun. The Kings, you know, should they be tanking one more year to try and get the final piece to pair with De'Aaron? I don't know, but they're going for it and they're playing well. And I, I love when teams try and I love when teams are buyers because, you know, I, I, as you say, a buyer's market makes, you know, for, a, for an interesting league, I think. Yeah, and with the Hornets, it's like, you know, people want to say, like people want to make it binary and black and white. And it's like, if you're not contending for a championship, you should be stripping it down and trying to get high draft picks and rebuild. And there is a middle ground there and you can build from the middle. Like the Raptors are proof of that. And so, yeah, in a vacuum was the Gordon Hayward contract bad, I guess like it wasn't great, but like the Hornets for one thing are not, 
going to find any better use of that money or their cap space in the future. And now LaMelo Ball, who is essentially going to be their future, is coming into the league and gets to exist within a, a stable and competitive environment. And I think there's a lot of value in that, you know, rather than having him come in and having to shoulder a huge load for a terrible team. So does that mean like the Hornets are going to be championship contenders three or four years down the road? And like, Hey, we're still going to be a part of that. And like the contract would have been worth it from that perspective, you know, in terms of championship equity added, maybe not. But I think as far as bringing a young player along and getting him reps in you know, a competitive environment, I think big picture, like, yeah, that's important. Agreed. I obviously anything Gordon Hayward is going to be clowned upon for obvious reasons, but yeah, that's, that's worked out quite well for them. He might even, he might even make the all-star game and LaMelo looks good as hell, man. And Devonte and Terry and PJ Washington, you know, and you know, to some degree, Cody Zeller, a lot of fun basketball and Malik Monk as well. Okay, we're fully talking about the Hornets now. So anyway, do you have any random Raptors musings before we get out of here? Um, I guess I'm like, what, what is Chris Boucher? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is Chris Boucher like a part of this team's future? Is Chris Boucher good? Like sometimes he looks really, really good. And, and sometimes he looks very, very lost. And I just feel like my opinion of him changes from sometimes from one possession to the next, you know, let alone from one game to the next. And I find him to be a very fascinating player. And I, you know, one that confounds me a little bit. So my answer, he's good. He's a good player. It's there are players in the league who hit high highs and get a little bit lower than others. There are very, very uh, consistent players who provide things night in and night out, but you got to be able to hit some high highs. Typically those guys get a little bit overrated. So maybe that's what's going to happen with Chris Boucher, but at his contract at, you know, what he's able to produce, he is good. Now, is he, you know, is he a part of the future? I'm not sure. In fact, he might be, you know, sneakily the best guy to trade <laughs> if you're looking well, yeah, for Yeah, that, that team option on, on the second year right. is looking really, really good right now. It, it's incredible, yeah. And only 6.5 this year, I think. And so the team option looks really good. So do you look at a contender and say, this guy can, because of your cap sheet, can sit at the end of your bench as far as pay, but can give you like 18 minutes in a title game potentially, and could swing one in the finals, like something like that. And yeah, he's, especially if he keeps, if he's a plus 37, like shooter, if he's going to stroke it, not at 48% like he was, but if he's creeping up towards 36, 37, he's just flat out good. Because defensive playmaking, as we know, after watching Surge and seeing how many fans and analysts valued his defense at an equivalent to Marcus Saul's, the playmaking pop is something that a lot of people value rather than the, the quiet, you know, closeout that denies the advantage. But Boucher has the pop, man. Like he really does. I think it was, who was it? JV was doing a seal and John Morant was coming right down the lane and Boucher still managed to kind of like eke his arm out and block him late in the game last night. And, you know, you can't replicate that very easily and neither can the the jump shooting or the, you know, raucous rim running that he can provide sometimes and that he's been doing lately. He's good. Definitely good. Yeah. um, For somebody who blocks as many shots as he does, it's kind of amazing how few of those blocks actually come at the rim. Like (laughs) I I remember I looked this up because I wrote about him a couple weeks back, but he, he was first in the league by a mile in three point blocks and he was second to go bear in shot blocks in like the short mid range area. So like he's blocked a lot of those floaters and I guess you don't know how many of them are floaters or lob attempts, but like he blocks a ton of those. And I, I think, you know, like the, that physical tool set can make up for a lot, you know, like there, there are 
like the second jump is very valuable. And there were times in that game when like he was battling with JV on the glass and just like his ability to get up off the ground multiple times allowed him to keep like tapping those rebounds to himself, even though he was badly too. Yeah. 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 yeah, Even though he was badly out muscled and like uh, that helps him a ton on the offensive glass where he's just been a beast. Um, And I guess, I, I mean, it depends, I suppose, how much you think, this stuff, you know, in terms of like defensive awareness is teachable and like, can he improve that part of his game? I think he's gotten better at it, but um, I'm thinking of like of one possession last night where it was just, I had no idea what he was doing. It was like the Grizzlies were setting up a dribble handoff at the top for uh, JV and Ja. And so Boucher comes and like presses right up on JV at like the the top of the three-point line, which is like if you're pressing all the way up on JV that high on the floor, presumably you're doing it so that you can make some effort to deter the dribble handoff that's coming. But he didn't. Like he just stayed attached to JV. And so Ja like drove into the middle. Pascal winds up helping off of the corner. Fred, who was chasing over top, makes like a great peel-off rotation to the corner and run um I think it was Xavier Tillman off of the arc and force him to drive jaw relocates Tillman hits him with the pass Siakam recovers but like Boucher who's been trailing the play the entire time also runs to jaw for like no apparent reason and JV's wide open under the basket oh yeah he floated in the middle like by the nail right yeah yeah and so There are just like a bunch of plays like that where it's like he still doesn't quite seem to have the defensive fundamentals down, but but like the athleticism and the length um, can often just like erase those mistakes, you know, to the point that I think he's probably been, would you say he's been a plus defender this year? It's it's tough to parse this stuff out because I – I have a really tough time giving opinions on people who exist in the middle because I think the middle is the hardest place to rate people defensively. Mm -hmm. Offensively, I think you can find it, but it's easy to identify the good defensive players and easy to identify the bad ones. But identifying if he's marginally plus or negative, I'm not sure. I guess I would lean plus for Boucher. Yeah, I I think he's been... I almost want to say he's just been like exactly average in that (laughs) (laughs) like you always just take the good with the bad with him. Um, And on on the positive side of the ledger, you have, like you said, the defensive playmaking and the flashes of rim protection, like the incredible closeouts. But on the bad, you know, you have those, those weird possessions where he just kind of like doesn't know what his assignment is supposed to be. The defensive rebounding obviously continues to be an issue and, um, I do think the the book is out a little bit on those flyby closeouts where he's just getting pump faked off his feet like time and time again. And I feel like that might require an adjustment from him at some point too. Same with Pascal. Although Pascal is very good at closing out under control. It's just, I think the scheme calls for it. But as you say, Boucher, that might be something that if it's no longer part of the scheme, he could really struggle with if he has to just close out under control the the fouls per 36 could go up i think yeah and then that's already been an issue for you know the entire <laughs> yeah. team as uh, as i've written about so all right joe uh feels like a good place to end it how do you feel about that great as always man it's a it's always a pleasure coming on and chopping it up with you man perfect likewise so joe uh Thanks for coming on, of course, but the, the floor is yours to plug, plug, plug away, as per usual. Uh, as per usual, you can find my work at The Score, uh, the website or the mobile app. I write NBA features over there. Um, I host, co-host Pound the Rock, a general NBA podcast. Comes out weekly uh, with Joseph Cacharo. And you can find me on Twitter at Joey underscore W. That's about all I got. All right. I'll I'll take a leap off of that. Listener, if you are a fan of the league at large, Pound the Rock is one of the best you could listen to. There's a lot of league-wide podcasts out there, 
And I think uh, Joe and Joe or Joe and Joey, uh, they get into it in some of the best ways. It's uh, Zach Lowe-esque, I would think, as far as how, how well it covers the, uh, the overall arc of the league. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely worth your time. But, Joe, thank you so much for tuning in and coming in and uh, making some time for me. Anytime, man. And to the listeners, uh, I wouldn't get your hopes up too high with, with the Zach Lowe <laughs> comparisons. I, I don't want to set people up for disappointment here. So uh, we do an okay job. We'd be grateful if you listened, but uh, we, we got to set some realistic expectations here as well. Well, you're not going to get De'Aaron Fox the morning that he's awarded, you know, player of the week, but yeah, the, the analysis will be there. And I, I enjoy that part probably the best, but listener, Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. But whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-800-941-2358 to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals. At RCA's state-of-the-art campuses, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs for patients with history of trauma or relapse, for young adults, for adults 50+, for LGBTQ patients who wish to seek treatment without worry of stigmas, a confidential program for first responders and military, and a faith-based program. Recovery Centers of America accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-800-941-2358. 800-941-2358.